millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Morning, Gary. Morning, Guy. We are in the Motor City. We are Detroit, home of Motown and Iggy. Yeah, and also, yeah, it's it's Motown and Detroit Rock City. Is that what they call it? Iggy, Alice Cooper, yeah. Alice Cooper, of course, who's been on the show. Would love to have Iggy, obviously. But in we it, would love to have Iggy. Anyone it, listening? In his own time. Uh, but it's been it's been fun so far on the road, I think. It's been fun. It's been hard work. It's been quite gruelling, you know, lo- lots of shows. I've had a bad cold, which I've uh, worked my way through. Well, uh, well, which you got after me. I'd started off the tour terribly. I had two shows where it was really worrying whether I was even going to get through it. And then, then it was your turn. But uh, but good audiences, what have we been to see? We've been where, where have we been? Anything exciting? Chicago, but um, Chicago was great, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicago was fantastic. Yeah, Boston was fantastic. Everyone has been fantastic. Audiences have been fantastic. In Philadelphia, we went down to see um, the, the exchange rate has been less than fantastic. In Philadelphia, we went to the old studio where where Bowie recorded, of course. Uh, but it was, of course, but it was right. and Gamble and Huff, of course, yes. Gamble, but it wasn't there. But, um, you know, that's sort of the hu- car park. It's a car park. Yes. Which in a way is kind of, at least it's not luxury flats. So anyway, we, we continue uh, still doing rock on tours while we're on tour. Um, have you met Thomas Dolby, Guy? I haven't met Thomas Dolby. No, never. I, but I did go to a very interesting gig of his, which we'll get to. Have you met him? Yeah, I did. I, I, I sort of hung out with him a little bit in Los Angeles where he lived and I lived in the early 90s. And, and I remember him sort of having vague ideas about putting polyphonic music onto video games <laughs> at the time, which I think it was an area he went into rather successfully. And and ringtones. He's Funnily enough, he's probably had a bigger impact on everyone's lives through not doing music than most musicians get to do with music. That's right. But, but also, he's got some fantastic stories. And, you know, names that might crop up on the way are obviously David Bowie, Michael Jackson, Foreigner, Def Leppard. I mean, he's he's certainly been part of this world. He, no, no, he absolutely has. And he tells he tells them well from what I've heard. So he's he's a perfect rock on tour fodder. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I've been sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Too, too get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Good morning. Thomas. Ah. Hello. Where are you? So nice to Where see you. Where are you guys? We're in Detroit. Oh. Where are you? Oh, did he play last night? No, we're playing tonight. Oh, right. Okay. You're in a rather splendid studio. What's that? Um, Where's that? Th- this is just uh, just my home. We we, we uh, live in Baltimore in a, in a in a 
sort of industrial loft. The last I heard, you had you were in England with a uh, a studio in a boat. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I have that as well. But uh, so I'm teaching at university now, so I get long summers off. So I, I go from about May to August. And uh, that's that's a house in Suffolk that we still have. And my kids are there, you know, so that's good. But, um, yeah, the rest of the year I'm here. Because you jump around a lot, don't you? Because I've known you one, once you're in America, then you're back in England, then you're in America, you're in England. Is, how is that for you? Is your home where your synthesizer is? Uh, yeah, it's a really good question, actually. Um, I've been coming since I was quite young, and um, my wife is from here. My three kids were born here. So it's definitely home away from home. And although I was born in London and I lived there from sort of 16 onwards, um, it never really felt like home. Actually, I have rather bad memories of London. <laughs> Oh. You, you know, you know, it's you know, it's like Gary. The way you talk to Americans, they go, "Oh, I love London," <laughs> and you go, "Yeah, where, where'd you stay?" I go, "Hampstead, Matt's Bridge." <laughs> you know, you go, yeah, 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 yeah. There's two Londons, mate. <laughs> yeah. Memories, you know, standing at the bus stop in the rain, waiting for a bus with the rain and the pigeon shit dripping down my neck, you know, and a, a sort of greasy kebab in my hand, you know. Because you, you actually, I, I heard an interview with you where you were talking about when you used to do the sound for kind of post-punk bands and dingles and places like that. And I yes. my memories of that whole world are... In fact, the first time I ever heard your name, I, I can remember exactly the moment I heard of you and heard you at the same time, which was when I was round at my friend Simon Lloyd's house and he had the Golden Age of Wireless and he said, this is an album I've just played on. He was a sax player for the, in the members... And he played he played various weird reed instruments yeah. on your first on your first album. He did. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, I did a gig at Dingwall. I mean, I engineered a gig at Dingwall's for the members, and it was Nicky Tesco's birthday. <laughs> I did. And I did a part of Nicky. Sadly, they, I did not know. Yeah, that's last very year. Simple. Yeah. We had a big, this massive birthday cake that came from Tesco or something. And of course, you know, the pogoing punks at the front decided it would be a good idea, you know, to to turn this cake into a weapon. And it was my no, it was my wedge my wedge monitors, you know, with the grills. And I spent about the next month sort of poking the stale chocolate cake out of my, my grills. Oh, was it your own PA? Oh it wasn't your own PA. You didn't have it was well. The, I remember that the foldback system was definitely mine. I, I think maybe it was their PA. I don't really remember. Oh, no, I mean, no. I, was, you know, I just always remember those little PA companies that did um, that when it, when you did pub gigs back then, and there would be the old sort yeah. of hippieish bloke and his incredibly bored girlfriend who used to come <laughs> around, and it was thirty quid. Yes. <laughs> well, people people would get it. People would be asked to be in bands because they owned a little PA. Absolutely, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you, it was a bit like you know the kid who had the football had to be yeah. in the team. Well, David Lee Roth was like that, wasn't he? <laughs> Access to the oh, really? van. Yeah. <laughs> but I've always thought because there's always been this thing of, of there are you know there are there are people that now old men sitting in castles and palaces around the world who know they're there because they could use their brother's van. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, hopefully you still got it so they can take the furniture away. When <laughs> but Thomas, what was your ambition to be at that point? Was it was that the way you saw yourself going as someone in the technical side of music? 
No, absolutely not. I mean, you know, I, I left school and I wanted to, I was interested in electronic music, first and foremost, and um, experimental film. And there was really nothing, you know, I'm from a, a very academic family and, and they probably would have liked me to go to college and stuff, but there was really nothing for me. And um, I fell into, you know, I roadied a bit and then I sort of fell into doing front of house mixing, which I was good at. Um, and so I, I did that for a couple of years, really, but I was, you know, I was also playing keyboards and sort of trying to get into bands on the side. And um, I mean, you remember Melody Maker was, you know, the back of Melody Maker was, you, yeah. would, uh, <laughs> you would look for gigs, you know, and so I would go to auditions um, for gigs like that. And, and uh, eventually I did get a job, you know, as a keyboard player with a, with a retainer, and that was with Bruce Woolley and the Camera Club. And uh, and so at that point, I sort of gave up my um, my engineering, but it, it was a good it was good sort of night gig, and it was during the sort of I suppose you know post punk era. So I, I engineered for the Gang of Four, um, various different uh, sort of bands, and, and then my bread and butter actually was playing was engineering for a, a Jamaican punk soul band doing U.S. Air Force bases. <laughs> Which one? Uh, they were called J A L N, which stand, stand stood for just another lonely night, <laughs> uh, and and they they dressed up sort of like um, the Commodores or something, you know. But then they and you know it was all like they come off stage afterwards and they go, "Russ, that man, you can't play any over a bass chord," you know. Like, it was quite. <laughs> there are any lovers in the audience? <laughs> 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 but Bruce Woolley sounds like a match made in heaven for you, really, obviously, because, you know, he goes on and he's very involved in the Fairlight and he's very involved in um, with Buggles and Trevor Horn. Did he spot this sort of wunderkind coming up who had a like-minded love of, 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 of the future? Um, you'd have to ask Bruce that, but I would imagine yes. Um, you know, what was amazing at the time was that he had a record deal and uh, a manager, management company, and um, and that he had a, a hit song in the charts. Um, you know, it's before before Trevor Horn was really sort of known as a producer, um, but we were sort of, um, we were sort of, I suppose, you know, we wore these space cadet outfits, and I suppose we were sort of prototype. Um, it wasn't really new romantic, you know, we didn't have any sort of fluffy, um, you know, uh, bits on our clothes careful <laughs> careful well no i i, I remember because i knew nigel who became the who was the second bass player in the camera club yeah. but I, and i always thought they kind of fell between two stools a bit was the, slightly the problem was do you, do you know what i mean because you were either pop or you were a new wave or you were either enemy or you were i think you got that exactly right actually and and i think um you know because we also had a version of video killed the radio star which bruce co-wrote with with trevor and um jeff downs and, and whereas Trevor's was very poppy and, and novelty and so on, uh, we we had a sort of rockier, you know, more hardcore version of it. And we were actually out there playing clubs and things. Um, but, you know, Trevor's version went to number one all over the world and we sort of sank without trace. Um, but, you know, Bruce is extremely talented, really super nice guy and a big influence on me, you know, as a songwriter um, uh, uh, as well. So I think melodically. Um, and uh, he, went, he went on to, he co-wrote Slave to the Rhythm, didn't he? He did, yeah. I mean, he's done various collaborations with with Trevor over the years, and and these days, you know, he plays the theremin. There's a band called 
the radio science orchestra uh, who use sort of, you know, unusual hybrid instruments and stuff like that. And, and he makes, you know, sort of experimental Super 8 films in, in a warehouse in, in Twickenham and things. So, I mean, he does he does amazing stuff. I mean, he's a very talented guy. I just, I just want to touch on this. Before I go back and find out why you wanted to be a synthesizer player and where that first synthesizer came from, this, you know, you mentioned the theremin and, and I've seen pictures of Bruce, you know, dressed up in 1930s clothes and stuff. And, and I'm thinking of landscape, of what stuff you did. And I'm thinking there was a kind of nostalgia for the future rather than a real belief in the future. There was a sort of, you know, a pl people not just, I mean, you're playing synthesizers, you're making sounds that no one's heard before. But you're mm. looking back to sort of Dan Dare and and Radiotronics and 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 things that were from the 30s and 40s, in a way, and with a sense of humour as well. There are two things here. One, th it begs the question: why why looking back and looking forward at the same time? And also, why somehow contain it with humour? Yeah, no, you see I think, my point, Thomas. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that's that's dead right. I mean, you know, hindsight is um, twenty twenty, as they say. But um, yeah, I mean, there was a, it was sort of things that used to be modern. You know, I mean, synthesizers date back to you know early in the twentieth century. Um, I, I once met a, a Russian, an elderly Russian music professor, and he remembers at the Kremlin when there was a presentation um, of by Leon Theremin uh, of his his invention, you know, before World War II. Um, and the result of that was that Leon Theremin was sent off to Siberia to invent like um, weapons. I mean, you know, in, so mm. they, yeah. they, they saw his invention and they assigned him to doing, you know, detonators or something like that. Um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, it dates back a long way. And, and I think that, I think throughout the 20th century, yeah, there was this sort of optimism for the future, um, coupled to a sort of terror of it. Um, which which was um, very compelling and <clears throat> yeah I mean you could we took a humorous aspect you know sort of approach to it and um, tried to incorporate that into what we did and I suppose that was you know although it didn't have the trappings of of steampunk in terms of the goggles and the cogs and stuff like that what what it shared was this sort of um, yeah affectionate um, view of sort of old science fiction and how things may have turned out differently. Yeah, quite a mass one. But also, if you look, I mean, science fiction, I guess, if you look at the 80s, you're talking about you've gone from 2001 to sort of Brazil and Blade Runner. Yeah, but it, is there something else in it for you, Thomas, that is where it's not, you don't, you're not wearing your heart on your sleeve in, in your lyrics and your music that I'm not suggesting you're, it's a, it's a way of hiding but it, it, it's it you were you were just removing yourself and becoming an observer and a, and a witty observer. Um, were you more comfortable as a songwriter in that mode? Yeah, I mean, I I tend to tended to veer away from sort of conversational relationship lyrics, you know, which a lot of pop music is sort of based around. So, and, and I tended to talk about geography and submarines and yeah. <laughs> things like that <laughs> yeah so so um, yeah. was it more comfortable yeah um the flip side was it distressed me when you know there was a sort of luddite attitude to new technology as well it's not real music you know um yeah uh, the machines you know you just hit go and they just play themselves um 
Oh, that, and there was that, a big musicians' union backlash as well, wasn't there? Oh, I remember that. Yeah, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Actually, I remember sitting in a musicians' union meeting, you know, which lots of our generation didn't, you know, pay much attention to the musicians' union. It wasn't really clear what they did for us. Well, but... you joined because it was a closed shop, and if you didn't, you couldn't go on top of the pops. Exactly. That. That's why you joined yeah. the MU. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a bunch of us turned up to a meeting on the agenda of which was a motion saying we propose that string synthesizers should be banned forever mm. and and there was a meeting like on a, a 10 o'clock on a on a thursday morning and about 10 of us showed up you know to sort of speak up on behalf of synthesizers and the other 70 members you know sort of flugelhorn players and things were like half asleep until it came to the vote you know all those in favor of banning synthesizers forever oh yeah you know these hands went up and 10 of us were looking around going you know, so we, we gave these impassioned speeches and the vote went the other way anyway. Um, but it, of course, it got, it got swept under the carpet because, of course, it wasn't, you know, there's no way it was going to stick. Um, but it's amazing to think that the MU actually voted to ban synthesizers altogether. Well, it, it's like ferries trying to ban the train. Yeah. yeah, but it's also, especially when you look back and re remember what string synthesizers actually sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And what about you as a as a kid discovering that sound? You mentioned electronic music. I guess you were discovering it in the same way I discovered it through through Bowie. I mean, yeah. you know, his trip to Berlin. Absolutely. No, no, I mean, that was I mean, think before he did that, how we were all watching, you know, every move he made every time, you know, there was a, a an article came out or whatever. Um, and he wasn't doing interviews at the time, but there'd be some piece in NME, you know, about his new direction or whatever and and then the album would come out and you queue up to get it and you get it and bring it home and you pour over the credits and the lyrics and just play it back to back and i remember when when that when the new that new album was low and it was like oh my goodness it's like completely from another planet uh, and then you 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 gradually found out about you know eno and visconti and going to berlin yeah. and playing at hansa and it was like, oh, there's all of that, you know. It's like so, like a flock of sheep. We all sort of went, oh, okay, let's go over here, you know. Um, and uh, and it just sounded amazing. It was so it was so ballsy, you know, to use machines to make pop music. I mean, just extraordinary. Um, so that was that was a huge influence. And and I think what was interesting about that was that when you brought synthesizers and machines to the fore like that, they have an inherent sort of you know, Cold War vibe to them a little bit. You know, there's, there's something a little bit um, icy about working with a machine. And, uh, you know, a lot of people went down that road and let machines sound like machines with all of their quirks and made that into a thing, you know, and the, and the, and the vocals and the lyrics went along with that. I mean, think Gary Newman, you know, on top of the pops doing Our Friends mm. Electric or whatever. Um but it was actually, that wasn't what it was about really for me. I, mean, I, I, I sort of touched on that, but what it was really about was that I, I liked the idea of all of those different timbres, you know. I, so I'm really sort of a frustrated orchestrator. You know, I love the idea of creating all these different textures. And what I was going for was warmth really, rather than frostiness. Um, so I think with a lot of my early stuff, I was sort of trying to find the warmth and the humanity, you know, that these machines would be capable of if if they were used as a sort of you know as a form of expression really by the artist listening to your early records now thomas which has been great fun to, to revisit 
is realizing how how you were actually very ahead of the curve in the in terms of the because synth records the early eighties were very very simple. If you think of soft sound, everything everything was one or two things, and you had very complex arrangements. Whether you had various synths doing what would be classically defined parts for things, which became I would say a lot of your stuff became very much a benchmark for your classic pop arrangement of the later 80s. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the first Spandau Ballet album, every track was just like one synth playing a riff. Right, which is the the more straightforward thing to do. I mean, but also a lot of bands like Spandau Ballet that didn't, strictly speaking, have a keyboard player who specialised in it. It's just that somebody would get their hands on a synth and do something neat with it, you know. Uh, Obviously, there, there are exceptions. I mean, you know, Duran Duran, for example, had a specialist keyboard player who who was originating a lot of the stuff. But a lot of a lot of bands like you guys, you know, XTC was another example where you know the guitarist would get a hold of a synth and do something cool with it. But often that would be a riff, you know, ra- rather yeah. than a full arrangement. You used the Furlight early on, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I mean, I was. Very, I went to you know, their place in Potts Point back in '82. I remember. <laughs> Okay. All right. So I mean, you you would remember at the time it was that was actually quite an exclusive little club of people getting Fairlight demos in nineteen eighty two. That was absolutely and like then, there was then, one guy I knew who had one in London, Chris Warwick. And then um, Landscape went on Tomorrow's World and demoed the Fairlight. And you remember that guy on Tomorrow's World that would sort of sit in a stool and tell you about the future? Right, but, <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh... It, it was right before Top of the Pops on yeah, a Thursday yeah. night. Ba, 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 da, ba, With his ba, long ba, face. Ba, da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, but, but Stevie no, I mean, Wonder had the Fairlight first, didn't he? Was, was he one of the earliest? No. Um, no? You know, the guy that invented the Fairlight told me a funny story because the guy that invented the Fairlight was not, knew nothing about music at all. Uh, I mean, he just sort of did it because it, because it was possible. And uh, in fact, when Stevie Wonder was, he was touring Australia and asked if they could bring a Fairlight up to his hotel suite. And he said, who the fuck is Stevie Wonder? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, my first advance from EMI, (laughs) I'll tell you exactly how I spent it because it was about a hundred grand. And with 24 which is which is what that, madonna would get today <laughs> i know <laughs> with with uh, with um the first 24000 of that i bought a flat in fulham and with the remaining 76000 i bought a fairlight oh my god oh my god <laughs> 76 just, and uh, in, in respect if i bought four flats in fulham <laughs> <laughs> just thomas just explain to people what a fairlight does and it becomes even funnier Yes, I mean, you know, if people are familiar with a Mellotron, you know, as in and Strawberry Fields, where, you know, you record a note, a flute playing a note on every note of the keyboard, and then a tape plays it back. Well, Fairlight is basically like a digital version of that. So you sample, take a digital recording of a sound, and then you lay it out across a keyboard so you can play it back. So that could be anything from a drum kit to, you know, sampling an orchestra. Uh, so now you have like a string section, you know, um, so, but I mean, in the early days, because of computing power, you had this big thing the size of a, you know, of a tumble dryer, basically, um, and it could take eight, it could do eight sounds at a time, so you, it's slightly under a second apiece. And then you had like a page on your computer and a pen where you would, you would draw in notes, and you had eight voices at your disposal. So you, you could basically, you know, pick eight sounds, one note each, and try and come up with whole arrangements with them. And um, it was it was very different at the time. <clears throat> and you felt like a damn pioneer because only Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel had them, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Um, 
So so everything you did sort of felt very original. Um, well, everyone and just it was, used it was, orchestra it, slab, didn't they? Everyone just, just went, rank! <laughs> right, exactly. But you could yeah. do it on I your mean, phone now, right? Kids do it on their phone now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could do a lot more on your phone, you know, with a free app than you could than you could do back then. But it also and, had the page where you could just draw waves, couldn't you? And back, yeah, with a, with a light pen yeah. drilling, yeah. <laughs> the whole episode of Tomorrow's World was devoted just to that light pen. Um, but I, I put my Fairlight away, you know, for years. And um, I was living in, in on the West Coast, and I had this sort of shed, like in the back garden, that I stored my old flight cases in and stuff. I felt like I'd been in there for a few years and the Fairlight themselves asked if they could have it for the Fairlight Museum. And uh, I said, yeah, absolutely. And I went out there and I unlocked this shed and the weeds had grown up through the through the floor. And it felt like, if you remember, had a sort of this chassis, you know, with sort of grills on it. And, and the weeds had sort of grown through the Fairlight and it was like the earth was trying to swallow it back up again. It was fantastic. I, I needed a machete because yeah. well, I remember when I went to when I went to the workshop, they had what they were proudest of. They had their first big bit of press they'd had, which I think was from the Sydney Morning Herald. And I said, "This machine could replace the home organ." <laughs> <laughs> was one of the first things that you wrote that cost yeah. more than your home. But <laughs> was was the Lena Lovitch track one of the first things you ended up successfully writing and getting in, in, into the onto the radio? Yes, because when I was with Bruce Woolley in the Camera Club, we toured the USA supporting Lane Lovitch, who, who you know had a following there, and we were playing sort of you know clubs and theatres and things. And I was bowled over by Lane. I was completely in awe of her. I'd never actually spoken to her or anything. Um, <clears throat> but it's just when the um, the first four track cassette had come out. If you remember those, it's like a, a cassette you could record on both yeah, sides of, yeah, yeah. and. Um, and, and it had a little mixer on it. So in my hotel room, I was writing. Porter yeah, Porter Studio. I was. I had a keyboard and, and this thing in my hotel room every night, and I was writing, and I, and I was so impressed with Lena that I wrote this song for her. And um, I sort of slipped it to her partner, Les Chappell, and like an envelope with a cassette and a little note in it, you know, sort of fanboy note. Um, and I, I had a dream, this is raconteurs, right? I, had a, I have to tell you this story because it's kind go of great. On, I, had a, I had a dream that Lena and while I was on tour, that Lena and I were going to move into a flat together, an apartment <laughs> together. And I thought this apartment was in was in New York or Paris or somewhere, because it's like a huge, it went from block to block. So there's big windows at either end and a partition in the middle. And it was empty. And Lena was walking from one through, you know, one side to the other going, I can only see two rooms here. I could swear there were three rooms, but I can only see two. This, this is my dream. So I wrote this down in, in this note to Lena. I sent her the song. Didn't hear anything about it at all. About three months later, I get a call saying um, from the record company saying Lena's interested in, in, you know, routining your song and seeing if it would work for her band. You know, would you come down to a rehearsal room? So I went down and everything. And, and we did, I didn't mention this note, but I ended up, you know, she covered the song. We did it. It went in the charts and everything. And then they told me they were going to do a video for it. And they gave me this address in, in Soho Square, London to show up to. And I walk up the stairs and I walk into this apartment and God damn it, it's the apartment from the dream. What? Right. And I, I never thought of it as London because I, I'd never been to a place like that in London, but it was the apartment from the dream. And in the middle of the room, they'd set up this parachute with 
uh, like uh, fans blowing through it. And they wanted the band to walk through this parachute in the middle of the room. And I was just stunned by that. I'm not at all woo-woo, right? I've never had supernatural experience <laughs> or anything. But I was just completely stunned by this. And eventually I became friendly with Lena and everything. And one night I decided I was going to tell her this whole story and see what she made of it. So I told her the story like I've told you. And she said, oh, Tom, you didn't, I gave your note to the location manager. And I said, find me an apartment like drives <laughs> in. Oh, did that burst the bubble a little bit? Or was that just even more wonderful? A bit. Because when you were describing your dream, I was thinking, wow, you actually dream in 80s video storyboards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his, dreams, his dreams are backlit with rain and smoke. Yeah. <laughs> pictures of Jap girls in synthesis. While you while you were away, didn't, while you were away, didn't you? Did, is that when you got a call um, about working with Foreigner? No. Well, no, I had so I got back. You know, after that US tour, I got back to London, and now I was pushing my songs. This I think is before New Toy came out. I was pushing my songs, and I was really, really trying to get a deal, and without much joy. And I was very badly in debt, and I actually sort of fled London and. Um, went to Paris uh, where a school friend of mine was working as a busker in the Metro and Matthew Seligman, who you mentioned oh, was yes. living, in, living in my flat in London. And he called me and he said, um, yeah, Mick Jones is trying to get hold of you. And I'm like, that's great. Mick Jones. Fantastic. He said, oh, I don't think it's that Mick Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Not the one from the clash. <laughs> so so I, I discovered there was another Mick Jones. I didn't know much about Foreigner, uh, who, as you remember, you know, we're not all that well known in the UK, but obviously massive in the US. And um, they were in New York. Hang on, just, just, just to fill people in, Mick Jones, the Mick Jones you're talking about from Foreigner is also Mark Ronson's stepfather. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah I'd forgotten that. That's true. And, and, and he's a Brit. Actually, most yeah. of Foreigner were, were, were English. Well, started by, were... started by the guy from um, uh, King Crimson, the saxophone yeah. player, fr or, or, or right. the famous, what's his name? Ian MacDonald. Um, they were in New York recording what turned out to be Foreigner 4 with Matt Langer. And um, they were getting towards the end and they put keyboards on the album, but they weren't very happy with them. And they asked that they'd heard my demo, my demo tape, because Matt was a partner in Zomba Music, ah. a publishing company. I'd sent, oh, yeah. I sent it to Zomba Music. Matt heard it and liked the keyboard playing. And so he thought, well, let's take a, you know, Hail Mary, you know, last, let's, let's try, try this young synthesizer player on that. So they flew me over from Paris, you know, it's like a, of course, I had a busy schedule, you know, on my backside in the Paris metro, but I took a couple of days out of my busy schedule, you know, to fly to New York. Um, and uh, they liked what I did, and so I ended up staying a month. And, uh, you know, they, they hadn't really done ballads before then. So they wanted me to sort of enrich. They had a couple of ballads on the album. They wanted me to sort of enrich them, but they had this deadline. So during the day, they were doing vocals, and they would leave me at night with a relief engineer uh, you know, all night with any keyboard that I wanted to hire from SIR, you know, off a laminated sheet, and they'd come back in the morning. So, I, you know, I'd never been in a proper recording studio before, so this is kind of fantastic. Um, and uh, and so I recorded that stuff, and, you know, among the stuff that I recorded um, was this uh, intro to Waiting for a Girl Like You, where I'd heard about this technique where you could you could record a note on each track of a multi-track and then use the faders like a Mellotron. So you could sort of, you know, so you put down a bunch of notes just sustained and then you could push the faders nice. up and down. This is and like the, isn't this like the, um, 
10cc did with vocals for I'm Not In Love. Exactly, that's what I heard. Yeah. That I think I think I read about this in an interview with Lowell Cream or something like that, that they'd done this. And I thought it'd be nice to try it with synth. So I, d I did this intro for Waiting For A Girl Like You and, and sort of, you know, uh, we stuck it on the front of um, uh, of that song and it came out, it's like a huge hit. And, and you know, so then you just would hear it everywhere. And, you know, I'd be in a, in a Hertz rental car in, in, you know, Detroit, Michigan, and FM radio would come on with this sort of ambient um, intro. And everybody said, you know, that's a bit different for Foreigner. You know, I wonder who did that, so. I think there's a story about when the band first heard it, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, so, <laughs> so I mean, they, one, one morning they, they came in and, and I, played, I played this intro to them and hit stop and there was sort of a silence. And the bass player, I can't remember his name, but the bass player said, it's a bit like massage music, isn't it? <laughs> and he said, go, oh, I, could, I could murder a massage. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Did you? Did, did you not you... have a feeling, though? Because that, that hook, I mean, you know, yeah, the, the, the build-up soundscape bit is beautiful. But that riff, it's like it's such. It's one of those absolute remember first time you heard it things. It's such a. Yeah, but I can't. When you wrote, did you not? Was, was that yours though, Thomas? Was that yours? No, I can't take credit for oh, that. No. That was Mick. Mick wrote that. Yeah, no, Mick would play that on Offender Roads, and and I, I can definitely not take credit for that. <laughs> but that's weird because that's because that's unlike anything I've heard from them before. That's why I would always assume that was you because it's like it's not foreignery. Well, I guess it's, you would have brought that sound to it, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I said, you know, I picked the sounds, um, but uh, no, I mean, Mick, he's a great songwriter, and and he he would write some of his songs on piano, but then sort of play them with the with you know with guitars and drums. But yeah, um, yeah. well, no, sorry, I was going slightly off beat because I was going to say what's an interesting thing with your whole sort of shtick as as sort of being the electronic machine guy. How you've always kind of seemed to have had a very tight knit. I know you've been very close to groups of musicians. You know the people you work with. I love what happens when musicians get in a room together. I mean, sometimes, <laughs> but because um, it's different. The thing about machines is this: that you know you can program a machine, you can get it to sound really good. But the next thing you program knows nothing about the first thing. You know, just the machine. Machines sort of do as they're told, hopefully, but they don't listen to each other, so they don't respond to each other. And and when musicians are playing together, it's like if you could analyze the waveforms and the physics of what's happening and then what's happening in brain in their brain chemistry there's just so much going on that in a hundred years we couldn't get ai to replicate what's happening there and and this this is true whether it's like a you know a bunch of jazzers just sort of improvising in a room or in fact you know when an orchestra is playing on stage it's not and this is why you know sampling doesn't do it justice because when a, you know, a violinist is playing and there are open strings resonating and then his neighbor's opening strings are resonating and the piano lid is open and the timpanis are ringing a bit and there's a sound under the stage and a sound back from the room. And all of that, everybody is processing in minute, you know, minute detail and it ends up in the tips of their fingers, you know, as they're playing. And, and so there's so much going on. I mean, the computing power it would take to replicate that. Mm -hmm. And you, the more you work with machines, you, the more you realize that they're dumb, you know, they're, they're building blocks. But also that, that there's, a, there's an emotional communication that goes on, uh, a mood. And it's interesting because you never really know who's in charge of that. It's a bit like, you know, if you've ever played, uh, you know, the glass in a seance, you know, when, you know, when, you're, when you're finding letters and spelling out a word, someone is pushing it, but no one knows who. When you're, when you're, when you're performing in front of an audience, um, there's a, normally a group of people, or maybe one person, 
who sets the mood, who makes, who decides it's going to be an audience who finds humour or finds gravitas. And that's something impossible to put into a computer, isn't it? Because it, it is it is really amazing that there's a, a i don't know if you you know eddie izzard right the, the yeah, comedian yeah, yeah, so there's, there's one video he did and i don't know if he did this every night but he comes on stage and, and you know the audience is clapping and then he sort of does one of those you know and the audience you know and then he says right we're going to sing a song and he goes and they just start saying oh, 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 oh. you know the whole audience is improvising a song and it's actually a tune there's a Bobby, Mc, yeah. There's a Bobby McFerrin thing like that, which is okay. absolutely amazing. Which it's him at some science conference, and where he mm-hmm. gets a whole audience, and, and he said wherever he does it in the world, they go to the same pentatonic scale. I've seen it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. But yeah. talking about being in front of an audience, the different things about because I came to a gig of yours, Thomas. That was extraordinary. It was absolutely brilliant at the Union Chapel, where you decided to do the Flat Earth with the band. But the deal was you wouldn't get together and rehearse before. Yeah, we did Why? it in front of the audience. <laughs> well, we, we, well, we got together for a drink in a pub and the drummer said, you know, we should really we should really um, do a sort of retro tour or gig or something like that. It was there some anniversary of the Flatter? And I like the idea of it. I don't really like the idea of like days or weeks in some horrible <laughs> a rehearsal room yeah. under the railway arches in Tooting with your old um, wedges. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so um, I said, okay, a, a cool way to do it would be that we don't rehearse. You know, that we just get together on stage and we go through the motions of relearning the songs, and then we take a break and then we come back and we play them. So that's that's exactly what we did. So it's like sort of you know knocking down the fourth wall. And a, and a bit of that and a bit of a reality show as well, you know, sort of letting the audience in and, you know, to your dirty laundry. And um, people brought, you know, some of the band members brought um, photos they'd taken on tour and things like that. We projected them behind and, and I basically taught them the songs again. You know, it's like a, we would stop and start and I, you know, showed them the parts and we'd routine the difficult bits. And then we went off and take, took a break and came back and performed the album. And it was um, it was great. It was great fun. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you had your first big hit, Thomas, and she blinded me with science, how did you feel about you know, you've been a session player, you've been in the side, and how did you now feel about being a pop star? You know, this was, 
this was definitely age of the pop star as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, I felt I felt a bit mixed about it because um, I'd always been a bit of a, you know, I'm, I'm naturally quite introverted. I'd always been a bit of a wallflower, you know, I'm not a particularly social person. I was never the center of attention when I walked in a room. And, um, you know, it was it was the age of the pop star, but it was the age of, uh, you know, Adamant and Sting and, and Simon Le Bon and, and, you know, Tony Hadley and all these poster children. Um, and I didn't feel that I could really comp compete in the handsome boy stakes like that. So I, I'd sort of I lady highlighted that too much, I feel. Uh, well, I mean, I'd, I'd highlighted a side of me that um, w was sort of quite contrary to that, which was the, the you know, the, the studious boffin, you know, up all night in the lab sort of with, with my machines kind of thing. And um, I think suddenly being launched into the limelight and having paparazzi and, and um, I mean, as you, as you guys well know, people behave very differently when they're face to face with somebody that is larger than life to them because they're, they're so aware of you via the media and stuff and they're not really themselves. So, and yet they're also scrutinizing you looking for bad behavior, looking, you know, to see how much of a diva you are or, or mm. how much of an ego you've got, but then in the meantime, not being themselves either, you know, so somebody that has sort of social anxiety to begin with, it can be very shocking to get into that yeah. situation where everybody around you is, is behaving very unnaturally. So I wasn't entirely comfortable with it. And there was a side of me that thought, okay, I don't really want to be the one in the spotlight. I'd rather be behind the scenes, you know, pulling the strings, you know, focusing the camera, twiddling the knobs, etc. Um, so I always had, you know, mixed feelings about it, to be honest. And you made your own video as well. You used to direct your own videos. I did. Yeah. I mean, um, so when I when I actually wrote She Blinding Moves Science, all I really had was a title and an idea for the video initially. You know, I didn't have a groove or a, a melody or anything like that. And I, st I started to sort of storyboard it, you know, to do sketches of this, this idea. I, I was a big fan of silent movie stars you know chaplin keaton harold lloyd people like that the sort of underdog heroes that would you know evade the bully and get the girl did you think and, and you'd that's... be able to get magnus pike how early did you how early did he come into it um actually pretty early i mean i found him in in central casting catalog you know <laughs> <laughs> You could hire him by the hour or by the day, you know, and so so I initially had him. But it's sort of early version of cameo. <laughs> yeah, but I had him do the recording first, and at the time I, I was um, I had a little studio in a, in a trading estate in in Earl's Court, West Ken, this sort of big Victorian trading estate, and you had to walk through a meatpacking um, uh, warehouse to get to it. And I had this little studio, and so I brought him there to do the recording, and he. You know, he, he thought this is a bit beneath him to have to walk through a meatpacking plant to do his vocal. But, you know, I'm thinking, OK, union rates, mate, you know. Um, uh, so he did it. But I, I did it on condition that he would do the um, he do the video as well. And, um, you know, he 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 was actually he was a bit of a brat, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> he, he I remember we were recording it, you know, and he sort of the first time he did it, you know, I said he had it written in front of him and he said, OK, she blinded me with science. And I said, ah, that's that's great, Dr. Pike. Um, it's not really a question, it's sort of more of a statement. And he said, yes, but as known scientist, it'd be a bit surprising if the girl blinded me with science. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I remember watching the VU meters and I think, all right, that's going on the record. Mate. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, and then, you know, I mean, on the day he had to be out of there by noon and he, he was more concerned about his taxi than anything else. And he, he refused to wear a white coat. In the, in the storyboard, I had him wearing a white coat and he said, my public don't view me that way. Um, and, and then if now, you, the, just, you just put one on him afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but this is 16 mil film. I don't yeah. think you could do that very easily. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The last time I saw him was, uh, I think, uh, you know, I think it was probably at the BBC actually. And I asked him how he was, and he, and he said, oh, "I've just got back from America." And I said, "Oh, how was that?" And he said, "Well, it was." The thing is, Dolby. Every time I walked down the street, somebody would come up behind me and go, "Science!" <laughs> 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 I said, "Oh, oh you, you didn't like?" That? He said, "Well, it appears that uh, you're." bloody MTV video is better known over there than my body of scientific work. <laughs> Wasn't it when you were editing the video for that, though, that you first met Michael Jackson? Because I know you've got some stories from, with knowing Michael. Yeah, so, um, so I mean, I, I wrote and directed the video and um, I, I was very fortunate that I, I was indulged by by EMI, you know, given, given enough rope to do this. <clears throat> and I did it with Limelight Films, who was sort of one of the hot um, production oh, yeah, companies. Oh, yeah, yeah, we used Limelight. Days. Was it Steve Barron, was it? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Steve Barron directed the video for Billie Jean, which is the first single off Thriller. So at that point, Michael equaled, you know, the Jacksons, off the wall, you know, big hits, megastar, but not the global phenomenon that he became, you know, within a year mm -hmm. after that. So, so he was in London. Michael was in London because he wanted to be at the edit for oh, Billy G. I've got to hold you there because I know exactly what else he did. He went clubbing with my brother and Steve Strange at the exact same time. They, they, Michael did. Michael did, and it, obviously this was, oh. you know, they were they walked the streets of the West End together. So this was obviously he and was they, famous, but not quite the guy that we all sort of know. In, well, not like post. when I worked with him, where I never actually met him because he was hiding behind the mixing desk and we all had to pretend he wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Gary, did they go to school dinners? He went to the limelight, I think. <laughs> not school dinners. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> you remember before Club for Heroes, there were school dinners that's and that was... Right, right. Yeah, and there was a medieval it. one as well, wasn't there? Where, in fact, Dave Stewart used to play the lute dressed as a minstrel. Anyway, we die, we, we, yeah, we're, we're ruining yeah. again. We're ruining your story. Uh, carry on, Thomas. Anyway, so so Michael was in the in the edit suite next to me, and um, we literally met at the water cooler. And uh, he had he had heard she blinded me with science on in clubs and on the radio in the US, and and thought that I was an American guy, and so he's very surprised. And and we talked a little bit, and he gave me his number. And I had a filofax, remember those? So oh, I, I write, you know, Michael yeah. Jackson and a, and a, and a you know, 818 number in my filofax. And then, you know, a few months after that, my song had come out in the US and had been a big hit. And I was summoned to go over there and do a TV show. And I was I was really sick. I, ha I had um, mono, which is glandular fever. And I had to do this live TV show in front of a live audience, miming to my song. Um, but it was the 12 inch version of the song with the verses were back to front and I was getting it wrong and these kids were getting it right. It's just a terrible thing. I came off stage, felt like absolutely like death warmed up. And the, my entourage came back to the green room and sort of said, well, we, you know, we thought we'd spend the evening at, uh, we go to Carlos and Charlie's and then we go down the rainbow rooms and see a couple of bands. And I'm like, I've actually arranged to see a friend tonight. 
And I said, oh, you want to use the phone, you know? And they're standing there and I pull out my file of facts. I'm looking for an LA number to call. The, the first one I found, actually the only one I had, I think, was Michael Jackson. So I, I call, I thought I'm going to have to, I'm going to get a voicemail and I'm going to have to fake, you know, some, some appointment. And this voice goes, hello? <laughs> and it was him. And, and, and so we start talking and he goes, where are you? And I go, where are Burbank, we're in Burbank. He said, oh, that's that's very close to me. You should come over. And I'm like, okay. I said, guys, can you drop me a, a, in Encino? Encino, said, yeah. So we go there, it's like five limousines, you know, pull up to this gate on Encino. And they said, well, we could take you up to the house. So I said, I'll, I'll walk up the drive. I didn't want five limos to show up at the front of the house. So they let me off and it's pouring with rain. It was about a quarter of a mile up the drive to the house. So I get there and it's like, I'm, I'm absolutely sopping. And I looked through the glass, you know, to the side of the door, and there's like a big double staircase, like Busby Berkeley or something. And I ring the doorbell, and this little figure in a pink silk suit sort of comes down the stairs and opens the door. And he pulled me inside, and I was literally had a pool of water around my feet. And he gave me a wad of paper towels. This is like the beginning of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, isn't it? When they arrive at the house. So, um, and then, and then my, we... Michael proceeds to climb up into this chair that he's got. And, and it's like a throne that looks like it was designed for Henry VIII. Right. So he has to sort of climb up to get into it. Yeah. And he's sitting there like, and, and he gives me an Ottoman. <laughs> so I'm sitting there on an Ottoman dripping and we, and we proceed to have this amazing conversation. It's like, there's all these art treasures around the room, but incoherent, like, you know, a, a Darth Vader helmet and a, a, you know, Venetian gold clock, you know. Wow. Uh, <laughs> During the course of the conversation, we're having a conversation about, you know, Fairlights and Synclaviers and things like that. And I'm sort of vaguely aware that there's little faces along the banisters. And I sort of look up and they disappear. And um, uh, look up again and a door opens and she blowing me science comes blasting out at about 120 decibels, you know, and giggling. And, and then I realized there's a bunch of little kids peering through the banisters and they're in their pajamas. And I say to Michael, you know, what's the deal? And he goes, well, Thursday nights, I have the neighbor kids over with their with their um, Tonka toys. He says, come on down, fellas, you know, and, and down both sides of the staircase come about a dozen small children in pajamas. And, and they sit down on like the Persian rug between us and they're playing with their with their cars. And he goes, yeah, you're telling me about the Sinclavia. I'm sort of watching this. And every now and then he goes, Billy, don't do that. Yes, sorry, go on. Jimmy? Share your toys. Incredible. <laughs> and, and so it went on. Um, and astonishing though this was, nothing about me struck it as creepy or sinister. Yeah. It was just... Yeah. Uh, it was. But it's like, the, it's like the Lost Boys. Yeah. But, also, yeah, but exactly. I, I, mean, I don't want to sort of dive onto this too much, but I think so much of, of Michael genuinely was that, was because there was never a childhood. He never had yeah. a childhood. So the, his entire life was just trying to find that childhood. I was watching Edward Scissorhands the other night, and I, and I realised that was sort of a parable about Michael, really. I wanted to. Is there a part of you thinking, "Fuck! I wish I'd gone to the Rainbow"? <laughs> <laughs> you would have bumped into Guy Pratt if you had. <laughs> I, I wanted to. I, I wanted to talk to you about working with Prefab Sprout as well, because yes, uh, we've got two legendary albums. I mean, those two albums, Steve McQueen and, uh, and and Langley Park, you know, and the work of Paddy McAloon is is extraordinary. And I think you made two of the most I mean, the sound on the album on, on Steve McQueen of the drums is, inc- is beautiful. 
but but also working with him as a, as one of the greatest songwriters in pop music. Well, thanks, Gary. I mean, it's that's great to hear you say that. And I know that you have an affinity with. I know from your music that that you have a sort of natural, you know, affinity with that stuff. But I mean, I mean, he is amazing. You don't have to be a musician to know how amazing um, he is. He's just really a, a phenomenon. And to me, it was like he was like a diamond in the rough because he he um, it's almost like an idiot savant in, in terms of how incredibly complex you know, his, his songwriting is and the emotions underneath it and the, the fascinating, you know, harmonies and, and chord sequences and stuff like that. And, and just the, the sort of depth of, of vision in the songs was just great, but it, it was very, very crude. And, and their first album that they did before they met me was almost sort of too didactic, you know, it had too many, you know, key changes, rhythm changes. And, and it was partly because he, he brought in musicians who, you know, Paddy just sort of strums and sings. He doesn't really notice how many beats are in a bar or how Sid many Barrett. bars are in a frame. It's very Sid Barrett. Yeah, Sid Barrett, you know, yeah. he, he sometimes is in the middle of singing, he'll leap an octave for no real reason. Um, and he was not aware of that. And the next time he plays the song, it's all different, you know. And so he, he would have musicians come in and the drummer would go, oh, Paddy, you know, it's really interesting. It's like you've got an extra half half bar, you know, in there. But if I play a paradiddle, you know, on my hi-hat... Uh, you know, okay, all right, all right, fine. And so, so you know, I ended up with this sort of mishmash, slight mishmash. Um, and so a lot of my job really was in the rehearsal room, just simplifying things, simplifying the structures and actually getting them locked down. And when, as you well know, Gary, when you have a band that, if you have a great arrangement, you know, for a song, the production to an extent takes care of itself. Because if you just, you mic it up properly, you get good levels and good sounds on things, and if the arrangement is great and the performance is great, you don't worry about the production. It's like you, you need great production when the original stinks. Um, but uh, I, we went in a studio, we went in a good studio, Marcus was a good engineer and we mic'd everything up and we did what they'd been doing in the rehearsal room. And it pretty much sounded like it sounds with the exception that, you know, I did a sort of top layer of stuff with keyboards and with the Fairlight sampling Wendy's voice and so on, which gave it this sort of sheen, you know, to the top end, which as it turns out was a sound. It was very, it was very complimentary. Um, and I think actually, you know, I think, I think there was a, you know, during that period, there was this sense of sort of breathiness um, that you got from, um, uh, was that Art of Noise song, uh, Moments in Moments Love? the intro to true mm -hmm. uh it was this sort of soul breathiness and this you know glossy sheen you could get with a ssl desk um that uh, was very you know very in vogue uh, at the time and and thankfully you listen to it now and i think it stands stands i remember when we, it does, when we did Sorry. Sorry, guy. I just wanted to talk about that true section yeah, that you're talking yeah. about because your namesake gets involved in this as well. Because I, I, when when you used to, we used to make records in, in that period, we'd put it through Dolby's, uh, which, and then it'd come back and get de the other way, and it'd lose all the top hiss. It'd have the noise taken out of it, which was inherent in the analog tapes. And I liked the sound I was hearing when the Dolby's weren't on coming back. It was all kind of there was a lot of air and a lot of breathiness in it. So mm. I remember saying to Tony Swain, the producer, can we get those vocals, those backing vocals, but just don't put the Dolby on when, when you play them back. And and that's how we got right. that sound. Yeah, Matt Langer taught me that same trick. Um, you know, he, he used to use that a lot on on his stuff, on Def Leppard and things like that. Wow. Um, 
so yeah yeah that was a that was an unintentional utility for dolby labs that they probably never intended <laughs> Is that another reason for them to get cross with you? Well, no, because all I was going to say was was just a broader point that, that how those, and especially the way you describe it, Thomas, is it's very much a testament to you as a producer in that in that you didn't, in, in that you didn't impose yourself on the reason those records are so great is that you know someone who could have you could have really imposed yourself on them, but what's so brilliant was how you just you know. Let Paddy be Paddy. No, so no, no, but I I, I I I played them recently. I got them again on vinyl, and. Uh, and I was at, so knocked out by not just the songs. We all know the songs are great and the arrangements, but the clarity in those in that production is the space, the the oral mm. space that everything has in 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 the landscape is is perfect. I mean, bravo mm. to you. <clears throat> yeah, oh, thank you. No, I mean, I've always preferred to speak like you know surround systems and things. I think you can create a sound field with two speakers that is you know fully. Three dimension. I, I would. I would That's also. Well, you got. You got two ears. So. <laughs> I used to. You finally got to work. With, <laughs> you you work with you work with Bowie, didn't you, at Live Aid? We finally got to work with your one of your heroes. When when did you first meet David? How did that happen? So, Matthew Seligman and Kevin Armstrong had played on Absolute Beginners, and I think you know Live Aid was not long after that, and and Bowie's um, regular touring band people like Earl Slick and so on were off in the US doing other things and he was in he was in London he, he or he's in England he was shooting Labyrinth at Pinewood or Elstree or one of those things so he was in like from four o'clock in the morning he was in getting all his hair and makeup done and everything and and he was asked to do this gig charity gig 10 days hence by Bob Geldof and at the time he thought, oh, it sounds like a worthwhile thing to do. You know, maybe I can promote my current single, which was Loving the Alien and yeah. everything. That, that, you know, but, but I think over the course of the days, he, he realized it was not, it was a different kind of event altogether. And again, you know, hindsight, I mean, we were all aware it was going to be something huge, but I don't think anybody understood the, the, the scale of, of you know, well, Live Aid, the way We it stupidly up. played a new song too. I mean, what were we thinking? Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> anyway but i mean it's very easy in the mid you know to not see the wood for the trees um so i mean we, we had him for three evenings at nomis rehearsal studios for about four hours each after a long day's filming at, at at pinewood and um the band that we put together which included prefab sprouts uh neil conti on the drums yes. and matthew yes. Sullivan, kevin armstrong um we were of the generation that you know it was bible to us so I mean, he would come in and he and he'd sort of say you know I, I think i'd like to do um you know quicksand and without looking down we'd all start playing quicksand <laughs> no no that's probably a bad idea you know how, how about <laughs> how about china girl you know it's like and then so the four songs that we ended up doing he never settled on those until the the last rehearsal which I think was like the Friday, no, maybe the Thursday night before the Saturday gig. And we, we managed to play each of the songs that he wanted to play, but we'd never played them back to back. And, you know, when you're, when you're rehearsing routining stuff, you go through these phases where you can make them sound good after the third or fourth time you played them, and then you can make them sound good the first time, but the final phase is making them sound good in any order, yeah. you know, so you can have mm -hmm. a set, you know. So we were kind of nervous about this, but he had settled on the four songs and we all practiced them. And, and, you know, by the way, 
literally as he and I stood at the side of the stage about to go on, he jabs me in the ribs. We, we, the plan was to do Modern Love first. He jabs me in the ribs. He said, let's start with TVC one. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like a honky song piano <laughs> intro. And I'm looking at 120,000. This is like a nightmare. And a nightmare and a wet dream folded into <laughs> But, I mean, the amazing thing was that... Um, you know, I, I'd seen, you know, the Cracked Actor documentary on the BBC and I'd seen him in the back of a limo with a carton of, of orange juice being a complete milk, strung milk. out, you know, milk, okay, <laughs> being, being a complete sort of strung out, you know, yeah. utter brat. And that's what I was expecting. And in fact, he walks in the room and he's like the perfect gentleman. You know, you, you if you cast him in a movie, you would, you would cast Edward Fox, you know. He walks in, good evening, how is everybody? I thought we'd start off with... Heroes. Should we, should we? Should we play heroes? Yes, please, please. <laughs> and and you know, complete and utter gentleman. And we're sort of amazed. And he just he he. Although he plays all the instruments, he he never came over to me and said, "I think you got that chord inversion wrong" or anything. He would just like smile and beam, and he was exuding light and wonderfulness. And we were all like, you know, puppy dogs basically, um, trying to make it sound good. Um, the one exception to that was was when we um, so so. London, as you probably remember, was a complete, uh, you know, gridlock on the day of Live Aid. It's a beautiful sunny day and everything, but everywhere you went, every radio, every TV, you know, is blurting out about Live Aid and the traffic jams up the, with the wazoo. So I was instructed to go to Battersea Heliport. Yeah, that's where we, we flew gonna, from, yeah. Going to fly into to Wembley from there. And um, I, I get there and, and, and Bowie's there and he's no longer the English gentleman, he's now sort of starting to turn into the, the you know, hyper, the hyper anxious sort of diva. And he had this hat pulled down over his head. We get in the helicopter and he dreaded, he hated flying, right? And he hadn't, oh, yeah. I think he, he was flying in airplanes by then, but he'd never flown, flown in a helicopter before. But And we get in this thing and he was absolutely, you know, he's absolutely um, terrified. He's like looking out the window, chain smoking, and the pilot says, could you extinguish your cigarettes, please, sir? Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, how long, you said 12 minutes it takes are there any pylons or any any sort of <laughs> no no perfectly safe and so um you know i have this memory of of you know him silhouetted uh in the window chain smoking as we banked over the twin towers of wembley and, and in fact when when that that queen movie came out you know a couple of years ago uh bohemian rhapsody they, they had this sort of fake drone shot flying into wembley stadium that they'd done with CGI. And I thought that was actually my view, you know, except I had, I had Bowie in profile in there, you know, complaining about, uh, about, about the flight. But then we landed, we didn't land sort of actually at Wembley. It was like a few blocks away. And then we got a sort of motorcade through the back streets of Wembley with, with um, uh, uh, you know, motorbikes and those sort of bollards that are just wide enough for a limo to get through. And we're doing like 80 miles an hour in the back streets of Wembley. And he's going, oh, I love this bit. This is great. Oh. So, you know, he's, Fine with that. And then we screeched to a halt at Wembley Stadium and you can see like a hundred paparazzi converging on the car. And he said, he looks at me, he says, this is great. And he opens the door and goes out and he's sort of, you know, he's, he's the, the- All right, so so it's not slow down Arthur, stick to 30. <laughs> <laughs> he, he famously dropped a number, didn't he? For the, to, so Bob could play the, uh, the cars the, video. I, I don't remember anything about that actually. I just I remember the four songs that we actually did, right. but um, it may have been a plan to play another one. Oh no, yeah, no, there, there was one dropped, so there wasn't. You didn't have any. So you you didn't have like an A and B list in case anything happened. <laughs> Quick, go to Gene Genie. 
<laughs> I mean, I do remember. I do remember that. Um, so, Heroes, which is a deceptively simple song. Sometimes simple songs are the easiest to get wrong. It's like yeah. if, you, if it was Life on Mars, there's a chord sequence that you can follow, you know. But Heroes is sort of basically an A and a B yeah, section. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes it's this long, and sometimes it's that long. And to go into the B section, you get this riff which goes do 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 do, right? And I was playing that on the synth, and I thought, okay going to be just my luck that i stick that in in the middle of a verse <laughs> he turns around and gives me a dirty look you know and a fine like james brown um, but uh i mean i got there on stage and, and it's just i was absolutely on autopilot you know um it was just a fantastic experience actually thomas because we talked about you you because you, you have this love of of electronics and electronic music in the beginning but what was your what was, was there an actual musical moment for you first before the electronics or anything. Did you have any sort of, like, you know, all the Americans we have on had Saw the Beatles and Ed Sullivan or whatever? Or... I don't think so, really. I mean, I liked, um, you know, quirky individualist songwriters from um, Joni Mitchell to Captain Beefheart, you know, um, to Dan Hicks to Van Morrison. Um, I, I like stuff that really defied genres. Uh, that had very personal lyrics that were sort of unexpected. Yeah. And where the yeah. music the music was interesting, but the music was sort of there to serve the story and the song. But that's um, that's that was... quite sophisticated, hard to find stuff, I would have thought, as a isn't it back then? Yeah, I mean you could find it. I mean fortunately back then there were only a couple of hundred albums a year came yeah, out at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Relatively easy compared to these days. Um I think one of the main things about it was that I didn't know if they charted those records, you know, I didn't, I didn't really care about the charts. I didn't care if they're on the radio. <clears throat> they're very personal to me. And if I, if I met people that, you know, I go to the gigs and if I got talking to people that loved them as well, they became my people, you know, I sort of bonded with other people that saw it as well. Um, but it, it was a, you know, it's a, a bit of a curse as well because a lot of music I don't like really. I mean, most genres of music, I don't like them, and, and often I find myself sort of saying, oh, if only heavy metal sounded like this, I would like it. Or if only, you know, mariachi sounded like this, yeah, I would like it. I know it. what you so, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I use a lot, of, um, a lot of different musical idioms in my own music, and often that's that's me sort of saying just that. It's like, well, if Bossa Nova sounded like this, I'd dig it. Oh, know? right, or Zydeco. You've used Zydeco stuff, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I when I knew you, uh, we used to sort of, when I when I knew you, when we you were much of, nicer. <laughs> yeah, when we used to, when we used to hang a little bit together, Thomas. Uh, when I lived in LA and you lived in LA back in the early nineties, I remember sitting on a beach with you, uh, with your with our families and our kids, hmm. and I and you said something to me about you had this idea of or you were trying to you were working on where you would play a computer game and the music would change depending on the mood of where you were going in the computer game. or And, and I remember thinking, wow, that's going to be really tough. But that was the world you were walking into and you were going into when I, when I knew you. You were sort of heading towards Silicon Valley, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I was I was frustrated with the music industry. I mean, this would have been when, Gary, sort of 1990-ish? Yeah, 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 early 90s. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd probably peaked commercially at that time. Uh, I wasn't really playing the game. You know, my, the record companies and managers and stuff would have liked me to sort of 
come up with a cookie cutter version of what I'd been most successful with and so that they could really sell like soap powder. And I wasn't really w- willing to do that because, you know, I'm, I'm sort of very much compelled to be, to stretch out and be experimental. And so I'd never really fit into the, you know, that sort of formula. Um, but I was using technology, you know, in my music, I was using, you know, Macs and MIDI software and things like that. And I was working a little bit with you know, people like DigiDesign and Opcode and the, the companies that made that software. And I was sort of, cons- I started consulting with them. I was living in LA, but I was going back and forth to Silicon Valley and I was, I was working with them on upcoming, you know, soft versions of their software. And um, I got fascinated with that bit of it. And so I, I really wanted to start making my own. So I was drawn more and more to Silicon Valley. It was at a time when there were new potential forms of entertainment, you know, like sort of video games, CD-ROMs and, um, you know, VR and, and uh, you know, dif- different immersive interactive environments. And um, I've always been drawn to, you know, the possibilities of that a new technology brings, whether it's the Fairlight, whether it's, MTV videos, whether, you know, whatever. It's like as an artist, I think, oh, I wonder what I could do with that. So, so you know, I, I liked, I loved the idea of interactive music where rather than somebody's brain sort of creating this linear flow to things, stuff happening in real time and, and injecting technology, you know, so that so the artist now, instead of creating this sort of linear landscape, you inject yourself somehow into the software. And, and then it's, it's, you, you, your mind is sort of at work while the user, while the player is doing what they do. That that really appealed to me. There's a brilliant video up on YouTube uh, for people to go to of you singing what I think is absolutely fantastic song, Love is a Loaded Pistol. Um, mm, oh, thank you. Which was, uh, what album? I'm glad somebody noticed what, it, Gary, that's great. What album, what album <laughs> is that on? It's from a map of the floating city. Gorgeous, gorgeous record. It's, it, yeah, with a string quartet. Yeah, and your performance is fantastic on there. Oh, that's very sweet. That's very sweet. Well, also, um, I think we should give that, a, a comment to your your the, the thing you've just done with Todd Rundgren. Oh my God, yes. Oh, yeah. Which is a may which we love. It's fantastic. Oh, that's great. That that's riff, great. that bass well, um, riff, is in just yeah. so intoxicating. Well, it, and it goes on for six minutes or something. So it would need to be. Yeah. Um, Brilliant yeah, image so, in the, so, uh, that video as well. It's fantastic. I, I was kind of, you know, he told me about that that animation. I sort of thought it was going to be like a whole story, you know. It's like I was waiting for something to happen. It's like, oh. There is an of, element of that. Yeah, but it's <laughs> kind of kind of freaky. I liked it. It was engrossing. Yeah. But the song is brilliant. Well, I, we well, love I mean, Todd. Thank you. Um, I'd never actually worked with him. I'd sort of rubbed shoulders with him a couple of times. And then he was doing this album, you know, with some um, collaborations. And he said, did I have anything lying around? And and I had this song that I hadn't really finished. Um, I'm not your dog at the time of uh, a map of the floating city. And I sent him an MP3 and he said, he said, oh, great, I'd love to work on this. Can you send me some stems? And it's like, I don't think, I think that hard drive got wiped years ago. You know, it's like, so the MP3 is all I've got. And he said, okay, well, I'll see what I can do with that. <laughs> Did you not meet? Did you? Did it? Was it all? Uh, not, not for this one. No, 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 not for this. Although, actually, I'm going to see him in a couple of weeks because he's currently on tour, on, uh, doing a Bowie tribute tour with Adrian Ballou and Scrote, um, and uh, they're playing close to here in Annapolis. So I started coming guest on a couple of songs. Please, we're playing in Indianapolis. No, so, Annapolis. Not Indianapolis. Annapolis. 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 Yeah. Big... Uh, would you? Has he still got the full guitar? By the way. Did he have that? Didn't he have that Eric Clapton, yeah, the, George yeah. Harrison guitar for a bit? Anyway, anyway but please tell him to be a raconteur. We yes. need him on the show, Thomas. For sure. 
Yeah, I will definitely and, do and, that. And I'm assuming you haven't had a miserable time. <laughs> and are you guys actually coming through this neck of the woods on, on this tour? I feel Baltimore. we may have Washington no, we played. We've done the, we did Washington and Boston and Philadelphia. I don't know. Thomas, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Rock on Tours. Really, really, really brilliant. I know we could go on for hours, especially, the, you know, we've only just opened up the tech box. Well, well, great to catch up with you guys and uh, good luck with the rest of your tour. So are you a professor now? Uh, Is that what you're... you're... It's like I'm the only, you know, I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins and I'm the only one without a PhD. In fact, I left school at 16. We had we had like a graduation ceremony the other day and we get our rented gowns and caps and everything. And I'm looking for mine on the rack and mine, I haven't got like a fancy scarf. I said, where's my scarf? And they said, "Uh, that's actually your college alum is, you know, what's on your scarf. And I'm like, oh, so I'm like in a line of 30 professors. I'm the only one in a black gown with no scarf. Uh, People thought that was kind of... (laughs) Your parents would be happy you got a proper job, finally. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thomas. All the best. All right. Lovely man. Very lovely man. Fantastic. And again, yeah, there was, again, we barely scratched the surface, as is our catchphrase. Yeah. So what are you you going to do for the rest of the day in Detroit before the gig tonight? Uh, I don't know. I might... uh, have a little walk around, go to the gym. I don't know. Because before, it's not very nice out there. It's not very you, nice out there, Gal. I've done it because we, we usually go to. I've I've been to Motown twice now. Yes, it's great. So. We did it last time, didn't we? The Motown yeah. Studios, fantastic tour. If anyone ever gets a chance to be in Detroit, go and do the Motown tour. You you get to see the room where it happened. And I actually got to lie down on the spot where James Jameson had to lie on the floor because he was too <laughs> drunk to sit on a chair to play the bass to What's Going On. Yeah, but that, that that that's a good story in itself because they, they wasn't it written and by by uh, at about by two in the morning. Yeah, or Marlon, it's when they'd only just gone into sort of like sixties working hours because Motown was very much a nine to five operation, and the Funk Brothers used to go and do various jazz and soul gigs around town, and they were playing. And apparently Marvin came up with what's going on, and it was about midnight or something. And they, and so and of course they, you know, didn't have mobiles or anything. So they called every club in town till they found the one where they were playing. And they got, um, I've forgotten his name, the drummer. And he goes, listen, you guys need to get back here. Marvin's on this tip and, you know, it's not, he's, he's got to get it down now. They say, well, James is kind of drunk. I don't care. No, no, he's really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and so they turn up and James, and they, James is giving this chart and he just can't see it. And it's sort of, and, and then, and he just, and he can't sit on a chair to play. He just keeps sliding off. So they just lie him down on the ground. He basically lies on the floor on his back, his eyes closed, and plays arguably one of the greatest bass lines of all time. Well, that's why you're a rock on tour. Okay, <laughs> I want to thank Ben, our producer, and Stu for manning the controls today. Um, I think Ben's off on honeymoon. Is that the case? Maybe. Yes, he is. Yes, Ben Jones. And um, and uh, we are, we have an, another show we're recording in Toronto uh, in a, in in a. I think very soon. Yeah, hopefully, which and and, and a very fitting one for where for where we're going to be as well. Um, so yeah, we're still going to keep bringing it to you, people. It's good night from me, and good night from them. Mm-hmm.